Welcome back for the final episode of Choice or Coercion, the biography of Norplant podcast. I am your host, Justina Licata, and I am a 20th century historian that studies birth control, social policy in the 1990s, and population politics. This podcast focuses on the history of Norplant, the first subdermal implantable contraceptive device. And to refresh your memory, Norplant consisted of six silicone rubber rods filled with a man-made hormone that prevented pregnancy for up to five years. The FDA approved Norplant for use in 1990. The previous episode examined Baltimore City officials' decision to make Norplant available to some teenage girls in their public school's health clinics. The reaction this program produced revealed a divide within the African-American community. While some black organizations and individuals believed Norplant had the potential to help prevent teens from becoming pregnant and uplift the larger community, others considered the program to be premeditated racial genocide. Similarly, this episode illuminates another ideological divide. Today, we will examine state lawmakers' efforts to implement programs that would pay welfare recipients additional monetary benefits to use Norplant. The politicians in favor of these programs argued that this would provide welfare recipients access to an otherwise expensive contraceptive device and that no woman would be pressured into choosing Norplant. On the other hand, many reproductive justice activists, women's health activists, and politicians fought against these proposed programs because they believed that paying poor women to choose one birth control method over another took choice out of their decision. They believed these programs were coercive. This episode features some of my conversation with Brandi Collins Calhoun. Brandi is an African-American woman and a leading reproductive justice activist in Greensboro. She is the Director of Reproduction and Maternal Health at the Greensboro YWCA. Brandi is a childbirth and sex educator and a full-spectrum doula. She has written articles for Rewire News and The Root. Our conversation happened on May 29th, 2020, four days after George Floyd's murder, and amid nationwide protests against police brutality targeted at African Americans. Therefore, portions of our conversation reflect the link between police brutality and reproductive justice. I considered postponing the release of this episode to next week because I believe at this moment, white Americans, including myself, must listen and educate ourselves. However, these stories are centered on people of color, and I hope that this episode will amplify the often overlooked reproductive injustices women of color and indigenous women experience. With Brandy's help, I have collected a list of books, websites, and other podcasts that speak to these issues and will help you learn more. Please stick around to the end of the episode to hear this list. To contextualize this history, I want to step back and discuss the government's treatment of welfare recipients during the second half of the 20th century. Welfare was never popular, but the distrust of recipients of public assistance grew tremendously following World War II. This is when welfare became synonymous with African-American women migrating from the South to the North. In the 1970s, mostly Republican politicians from across the U.S. promoted anti-fraud campaigns targeted at ending the misuse of welfare benefits. 
While evidence shows that welfare fraud occurred only on a very limited scale, these political campaigns significantly increased suspicion of all women on welfare. During his 1976 presidential campaign, Ronald Reagan frequently disparaged welfare recipients, describing them as lazy and deceitful and referring to them as welfare queens. This concept of the welfare queen came to influence the political debate around the welfare system throughout the 1980s and 1990s. At the same time, many Democratic politicians began supporting policies previously associated with right-wing ideologies. They argued that minimizing the government's interaction with the marketplace would help the U.S. become more competitive in the global economy. In the early 1990s, Democratic President Bill Clinton epitomized a stance. He ran for president on a platform that advocated for sweeping welfare reforms and aggressive crime control policies. Ultimately, this shift led to the passing of the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act in 1996. This act was a complete overhaul of the welfare system. It eliminated entitlements to welfare and replaced it with stringent work requirements and time limits for all welfare recipients. Historians have examined the negative effects this significant welfare reform had on welfare recipients, but Norplant's role in these struggles has been left out of the narrative. Norplant's history demonstrates that the backlash against welfare recipients was even more pervasive than most have recognized, and it included policies specifically intended to curb poor women's childbearing. Before President Clinton signed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act in 1996, state representatives from across the U.S. proposed programs that would provide additional monetary benefits to welfare recipients that chose to use Norplant. The first of these programs was proposed in Kansas. Republican State Representative Carrie Patrick proposed a bill that would provide women on welfare with a $500 one-time grant if they agreed to have Norplant inserted under the skin of their arm and an additional $50 for each year the woman remained on the contraceptive. The controversial proposal incited much debate, both within the state and nationwide. In an interview that aired on CBS, Patrick defended his bill. He told a reporter, It is time we stop worrying about the rights of the mother and start worrying about the rights of the children she brings into the world. End quote. With this incentive program, Patrick intended to prevent pregnancies amongst women on welfare, and he publicly used the rights of children and anti-abortion rhetoric to justify the Norplant Incentive Program. These arguments are very similar to Judge Howard Broadman's justification for requiring Darlene Johnson to use Norplant as part of her parole agreement, which we examined in this podcast's second episode. Like Judge Broadman, Representative Patrick argued that unconceived children's rights took priority over welfare recipients' rights. Leading the fight against Patrick's incentive program in Kansas was Democratic Representative Kathleen Sebelius. She later became the Secretary of Health and Human Services under Democratic President Barack Obama. In the early 1990s, Sibelius saw Norplant as a significant breakthrough in birth control technology that could aid many women. Seeing powerful men use the contraceptive device to dictate women's reproductive choices horrified her. Sibelius told a reporter that she believed this program would be offering a woman, and I quote, a bounty to use a birth control device, end quote. Meanwhile, in Louisiana, David Duke, a former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, was running for governor. 
As part of his platform, Duke proposed an initiative program that would give Mothers on Welfare cash payments if they used Norplant. Although Duke considered his proposal to be tough love, others considered these proposals to be forced temporary sterilization. An article in the Harvard Crimson, the daily student newspaper, commented, and I quote, When women are desperate for money to help raise their children, the carrot of increased benefits for using Norplant becomes a stick, and choice becomes coercion, even extortion, end quote. Duke lost the governor's race, but in 1991, as a member of Louisiana's state Senate, he proposed legislation offering $100 a year to any woman on welfare who used Norplant. Almost immediately, other state legislatures across the U.S. proposed programs that encouraged poor women to use Norplant. In 1993 alone, 17 legislative measures related to Norplant were proposed in 10 states, including Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Illinois, Maryland, North Carolina, Ohio, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Washington. An examination of the 1992 presidential results demonstrates that these states were not dominated by a single party. Instead, both Democrats and Republicans advocated for these policies. Most of the proposed measures offered monetary incentives to women who chose to go on Norplant. But a few of the bills required welfare recipients to use Norplant to maintain their cash assistance. The state delegates who sponsored the bills maintained that they were not pressuring women to use Norplant because the monetary incentives offered were too small to create a significant change in a woman's life. In other words, they believed that although the extra money would be enough to gain the attention of women living on welfare, it was not enough to be considered coercion. Feminists and human rights organizations opposed these policies, arguing that they were a form of course of sterilization. One lawyer working for the American Civil Liberties Union observed that the organization would have loved to see the program be part of a larger effort to make reproductive health care better than, and I quote, a bribe that pushed women into one choice instead of creating more choices, end quote. Reproductive justice organizations also mobilized against these proposed programs. In the 1990s, women of color and indigenous women developed the concept of reproductive justice to draw attention to unlawful and immoral controls placed on minority women's bodies and to spotlight the ways minority women often experience reproductive health discrimination differently than white women. Reproductive justice activists fought not only for safe, legal, and affordable abortions, but also for access to all forms of reproductive health care, affordable child care and prenatal care, and freedom from state-sanctioned sterilizations. In the early 1990s, reproductive justice activists acted swiftly, disseminating information about the proposed incentive programs and Norplant's risks and side effects to other feminists, women's health organizations, women of color, and indigenous women across the U.S. For example, the National Black Women's Health Project, a reproductive justice organization started by a group of African-American women in the 1980s, used their monthly newsletter, Vital Signs, to advocate against these proposed programs and to inform their community of the reproductive abuses associated with Norplant. In one article, the organization's director, Julie R. Scott, reflected on the many ways poor women experience coercion, including their right to make decisions about their reproduction. She said, and I quote, 
Poor women have limited decision-making powers within the family and within society, including their power to control their own fertility. Poor women often know the facts but feel powerless to make changes because their lives are conditioned by many levels of oppression and despair, end quote. Ultimately, due to the backlash and media attention, none of the incentive programs passed the proposal stage. While the incentive programs were never put into practice, every state's and D.C.'s Medicaid program agreed to pay for a recipient's Norplant device and insertion. Although this gave many poor women access to Norplant, which at the time was a very expensive contraceptive device, this concerned many feminist activists. Some women's health activists, especially activists of color and indigenous activists, argued that it was coercion because Medicaid did not cover all forms of contraceptives. Also, many states' Medicaid programs did not cover Norplant's removal, which could cost as much as $200. This was especially true if the removal happened before the standard five-year period. For instance, in South Dakota, Oklahoma, and South Carolina, the state government would not pay to have the device removed early unless a woman experienced a medical complication authorities deemed worthy. Evidence shows that some Medicaid recipients struggle to convince healthcare providers to remove their Norplant device upon request. Miss Magazine, a feminist magazine started by Gloria Steinem in 1971, published an article about a 21-year-old African-American woman's experience with Norplant. She chose to use Norplant following her daughter's birth because Medicaid covered the costs. When she had Norplant inserted, her nurse practitioner did not counsel her on the side effects and risks associated with the drug. Therefore, she was surprised when she experienced severe cramping, constant bleeding, migraines, dizziness, and fatigue. Her symptoms prompted her to return to the clinic to have the device removed, but instead of removing it from her arm, a nurse practitioner tried to treat her symptoms with estrogen, birth control pills, Motrin, and vitamin C. After two and a half years of suffering, the woman switched clinics. Her new doctor agreed to remove the Norplant device, but when she underwent the surgery, the doctor found that the capsules had been inserted too deeply. After a hour-long painful procedure, which tore ligaments in her arm, the doctor was still unable to locate the sixth capsule and decided to leave it in. The article in Miss Magazine was published two years following this ordeal, and in the article, the Norplant patient told the reporter that she was still suffering from frequent migraines, which she attributed to the capsule that was still in her body. This African-American woman's story shows how Medicaid policies negatively impacted her health, even after she convinced a medical professional to remove her Norplant device. State lawmakers' efforts to encourage poor women to use Norplant were part of a larger political shift. As shown in both this episode and past episodes, in the 1990s, American judges, lawmakers, and community leaders tried to use Norplant to reduce the welfare state, curb teenage pregnancy, and temporarily sterilize women who used illegal drugs. These efforts were part of a wider assault on poor African-American communities. Black men were the primary targets of the phenomenal growth of imprisonment that accompanied the war on drugs. Some women of color and indigenous women also got caught up in this dragnet, but they were more likely to be targeted through policies directed at their childbearing and procreation 
such as the elimination of welfare. Norplant was part of this gender-based assault on poor and minority people's lives. One aspect of Norplant's history that I was not able to get into in this podcast was the feminist and mostly reproductive justice activists fight against these policies. Therefore, I wanted to include a voice that is doing that sort of work today. My conversation with Brandy Collins Calhoun reflects on this history and how reproductive justice has evolved in the last 25 years. I began by asking Brandy about Norplant specifically and her thoughts on the way the device was used to control certain women's bodies. So just when I think about what they did with Norplant and what came before that, it's, it's really a reminder of how they, in the medical industrial complex as a whole has been used to violate Black bodies and control the way that Black bodies give birth. Because when we, you know, I always go back to writing midwives. The role that the health department had in pretty much pushing black support system out of the rooms and a lot of other things. So I think that for me, it's more when it comes up, especially in that chapter of Dorothy's book and some other things. Here, Brandy is referring to Dorothy Roberts' book, Killing the Black Body. This is a really essential read, especially in regards to reproductive justice. And I'll tell you a little bit more about it at the end of this episode. It's my reminder of how much state violence and maternal health evolves because it's something, you know, that we've seen time and time again. I think Norplane was just the the next step. I think for a lot of people, especially in, in my generation, in my group, organizers and educators, that is our our first wave of state violence at the hands of like hospitals and sterilization and sterilizing black bodies that we really remember. At this point in our conversation, Brandy speaks a bit about her own family's connection to course of sterilizations and its link to contraceptive testing trials earlier in the 20th century. The conversation of the generational part is definitely like a personal story that I know, primarily because my mother and other women in my family were a part of those trials. And um, my mother had me at 27 when she was 23, she lost her left ovary. And by the time she was 31, she had to have a full hysterectomy because of it. And growing up, my sisters and I really never had like a full understanding of why my mother was so against us getting on birth control, going to the gynecologist, having any conversations um, with providers about our reproductive or sexual health. And then once I got older and she shared that with me, it made more sense. But I can say that her distrust and uncertainty before I had an explanation definitely embedded you know, this isn't me, you know, and myself where I was kind of like, I don't trust it. And I still don't. Now our conversation moved a bit broader and I asked Brandy how she defined reproductive justice. <laughs> In a short way, black liberation. <laughs> um, but overall, just how do I define reproductive justice? Really bodily autonomy in every sense possible, because bodily autonomy means, for me means like, you know, I can choose if I want to have a baby I don't want to have a baby, how I have a baby, how I raise it. Um, but it also looks like bodily autonomy from state violence. So it looks like me not having to worry about having a black child that might die at the hands of the police or be thrown into, you know, cages because of the police system. Like, that's bodily autonomy for me. To know that, like, my body is safe at all times, be it during pregnancy, preconception, interconception, whatever. Knowing that my body is safe. As Brandy so wonderfully puts here, reproductive justice is all-encompassing. So I wondered about 
the term reproductive. It's a really gendered term and it's about having children or not having children. So I wondered if she believed that the term should change to make more people aware of how encompassing it really is. She had a really fascinating answer to this question, so I had to include it. It's twofold because it can be misleading. They can also be an awakening. You know, an awakening, and I was having this conversation earlier, that right now everything that's going on on the ground in Minneapolis is reproductive justice. You know, there's a lot of conversations around, you know, police, you know, prison abolition and all these things. But it's like when we sit back and we think about everything that's happening right now, there's reproductive justice happening there. There's environmental justice happening there. People are crumbling capitalism. They are taking on state violence. Like, so there's... (laughs) There's all these things that are happening. And it's, like I said, it can be that awakening of reproductive justice exists in everything that we do. Like, there's nothing that we're doing because it is bodily autonomy and black liberation. There's nothing that we're doing that's not reproductive justice. But then there is that other lens of, like, movements and work and issues are so siloed. One, because of identity politics. And then two, just because of the way that, like, movements are structured they're not understanding where those things intertwine and it's okay because you know it took me to be on the front lines you know having conversations around like okay i am in the middle of this rapid response this uprising and i'm okay i can operate and function in these spaces but this person who's with me can't because they're not arrestable because they're a single parent to a small child and they're reproductive you know, life experiences means that they have to go home because if they get arrested, who's going to take care of their child? So there's just so many things that go into it. To finish our conversation, I asked Brandy how she believed reproductive justice had evolved in the last 25 years since the early 1990s. And what are the issues most important to the movement today? I definitely think it's evolved in the business of removing respectability When I look at earlier conversations around reproductive justice and even when I look at, you know, some of the reproductive justice leaders from that time and I'm reminded that respectability plays a big role in some of the the parts of the movement that they stand in and stood for. I'm seeing a lot more conversations in spaces that are safer because it's very clear that these aren't spaces that white people have to occupy all the time. But it's also because there's now this, what I consider a more advanced racial justice lens in this work. Autonomous spaces are fine now. Where before it was like, okay, let's put all black and brown people in a room and talk about it. But it's like we're experiencing this in so many different ways. So I think that in regards to the way that it's evolved, it's siloed in a very good way. But in a way where we're all still leaning on one another and showing up for one another, but understanding that each experience Um, especially now that people have the term intersectionality, every experience is different. And I think it's definitely shifted for the better. I think it's evolved for the better. I think that the best thing that I have seen so far is I'm really thankful to see so many um, trans women of color leading a lot of the work um, in reproductive justice spaces because people try to keep them from the table for the longest. And what they didn't know is If it's anybody that I can imagine is going to get us free, it's them, honestly. And it's also been a relief, although I know that art spaces could do better to see that their time and their capacity are being honored and paid for in a way that it definitely wasn't before. To close out our conversation, 
Brandy reflected on the issues most significant to the reproductive justice movement today. And just a reminder, this was recorded just a few days following George Floyd's murder, also during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm trying to think because this moment is is a lot because it's both pandemic and uprising. So I think right now the conversations around maternal mortality for black and brown bodies, because there's, you know, there were jokes early on in COVID around COVID babies because people are in the house and that's very real. People are getting pregnant because they're stuck in the house. And that that was already one scary conversation when you think about black people who already have very little, or people who were pregnant before COVID who have very little access already to doctors who now because of COVID are having to social distance and have these telehealth appointments, which is a terrifying thing for black pregnant bodies. Because if you don't believe it's in person, how are you gonna believe it's on a webcam? But that's a whole nother thing. But also because that that trauma that black bodies hold. So right now you have so many pregnant black people that are watching state violence and watching, you know, things that are happening to our people on television, on social media, and they're holding a lot of that. And racism, not just what we experience in the hospital, but just what we experience in life and during our pregnancies impact our birth rates. Just the conversation around what's going to happen to the people that are pregnant right now when they go to give birth with these bodies that have experienced pandemic and state violence trauma for the last 40 weeks. Then there's also the conversation of abortion, which I will name in both moments, but definitely in pandemic because people are terrified to go into any kind of medical facility right now and abortion clinics aren't aren't separate from that. So definitely abortion. And then also, again, like access for people who are, you know, in a number of ways in homes and having sex because that's what they're they're wanting to do or people that are in homes and having sex and it's not what they want to do. That's a that's a both and with abortion or, you know, people who were pregnant when COVID hit or before, you know, the uprising. And now it's just not something they can mentally or financially handle. People have lost their jobs. So a pregnancy that was in their mind, something they could sustain and handle is no longer. Or, you know, someone who was excited about bringing a Black life into this world is now terrified. So, you know, them having access to what they need in order to, you know, go through with whatever process they choose. So there's that. And then honestly, like, the issues that are RJ that people might not realize, but conversations around prisons right now, because we've got people dying from COVID that were already in cages. And then you have people that are a part of this uprising that they are arresting and putting into cages. So conversations around that. And then finally the conversation around um, really education because our children going back to school, like that's a part of the RJ slogan of raising our children in safe environments at safe schools. And when schools aren't safe or accessible, then that's, a, that's an RJ issue. So yeah. I know my conversation with Brandy veered away from the topic of Norplant, but I felt it was an important way to end this podcast. In the first episode, I mentioned I hope the history I shared here would inform the way you understand current political debates around reproduction. Since the early 1990s, reproductive justice activists have worked to end reproductive and racial injustices. As Brandy has showed us, this movement continues to shed light on injustices linked to racial liberation, bodily autonomy, and the right to have and raise children in a safe environment. 
Thank you so much to Brandy Collins Calhoun for taking the time to speak with me about Norplant's history and the reproductive justice movement. As promised earlier in this episode, I would like to leave you with a list of sources that will help you learn more about this history and the current political movement. Some great books to read are Killing the Black Body by Dorothea Roberts, and that is the one that Brandy mentioned in her interview, Medical Apartheid by Harriet A. Washington, Reproductive Justice and Introduction by Loretta J. Ross and Ricky Solinger, Hood Feminism by Mickey Kendall, A couple of reproductive justice organizations have excellent websites. First, URGE is a reproductive justice organization out of DC. You can find their website at urge.org. Another is Ultraviolet. You can find them at weareultraviolet.org. They are telling women's abortion stories, particularly women of color. A couple of podcasts also talking about reproductive justice issues are Bitch Magazines, Propaganda, and Backtalk, and Choice Slash Less, which is created by Rewire News. Lastly, if you would like to see some visuals related to this episode, check out our Instagram account. The handle is choice underscore or underscore coercion. Thank you so much for listening to my final episode. I am Justina Licata, and this is Choice or Coercion, the biography of Norplant podcast.